Welcome to NGA Notable Lectures, a podcast offering a deeper understanding of all things artistic. Dedicated to Edgar Degas, 1834-1917, in the centennial year of his death, Volume 3 of the Conservation Division's biennial journal, Factor, Conservation, Science, Art History, focuses on the tremendous wealth of works by Degas in the National Gallery of Art collection. The first to feature the work of a single artist, this issue includes essays by conservators, scientists, and curators. It presents insights into Degas' working methods in painting, sculpture in wax, and bronze, and works on paper, as well as a sonnet he wrote to his Little Dancer. The gallery has the third largest collection in the world of work by Degas, comprising 21 paintings, 65 sculptures, 34 drawings, 40 prints, two copper plates, and one volume of soft ground etchings. Its extensive Degas holdings and conservation resources have inspired not only groundbreaking gallery exhibitions, such as Degas the Dancers, 1984, Degas at the Races, 1998, Degas Little Dancer, 2014, and Degas Cassette, 2014, but also exhibitions around the world. For the public symposium held as a centenary tribute on September 22, 2017, Daphne Barber and Shelley Sturman presented on the complex topic of the posthumously cast bronzes and summarized their discoveries in historical and technical contexts. Good afternoon, everyone. Thanks for sticking around. I'm Shelley Sturman, Head of Object Conservation here at the National Gallery of Art. And what an amazing day. And I am delighted to be part of this centenary tribute to our wonderful artist, Degas. And so for today's final talk, which I probably only have to give half of it, thank you, Patricia, for uh, introducing everyone and whetting their appetites about Degas sculpture. Daphne Barber and I want to um, talk a little bit about the sculptures, but also give you a peek inside of uh, Degas and his genius as a sculptor. We've heard all about his many, many um, talents in art in general. Now our talk has two themes. We want to talk about the original wax and clay sculptures that you've heard a lot about just now. And we also then want to move into the bronzes that were cast, as Patricia said, posthumously from Degas' originals. And you've already seen, thank Thank you for using different Gautier photos than the ones I've got in here. Uh, the photographs that were made while the inventory of um, Degas' home was being made in 1917, 1918 after he died. You can tell these are the Gautier photos not only because they're black and white, but I like to uh, look at the molding there in the background that, that you could see in, in most of them. And at the time that the uh, inventory was being made. Degas' dealers, as Patricia reminded us, listed 80 sculptural works, noting, and I quote, some were in pieces, some almost reduced to dust, others badly broken, and the remaining 30 are quite fine. So the numbers don't always add up exactly, but we do know uh, in the end that there were 80 listed in the inventory. Legend has it that Degas only began to sculpt as his eyesight failed and prevented him from painting, but we know that wasn't really the case. 
contemporaries record that throughout his career, whenever they visited Degas, he was just as likely to be modeling in clay or in wax as they were to find him at the easel. And I like to uh, quote Mary Cassatt here, as you've heard other important quotes from her already. Uh, she, de she described Degas as an artist who would live to be a greater sculptor than a painter. And Renoir referred to him as the greatest living sculptor. Now maybe he just didn't want the um, uh, painter side of him to uh, be, uh, be uh, um, there to uh, have, a, have a little uh, challenge there. But actually few people outside of Degas' inner circle knew of his sculptural work because he only exhibited one sculpture in his lifetime. Little Dancer, 14 years old. And that was at the Sixth Impressionist Exhibition in 1881. As you know, that sculpture, we are proud to say, is here at the National Gallery of Art. And she is truly one of the most beloved sculptures in the entire world. Bronze versions are in collections around the world. And if any of you want to admit that you saw the movie uh, Night at the Museum, she came to life and danced across the screen on that movie. You've seen uh, two of these three Gautier photos of Little Dancer uh, that were made a century ago. And uh, 74 of the 80 sculptures listed in the final inventory were eventually cast into bronze. I think Patricia went over that for you. And it was only in the 1950s that 70 of the original wax and clay sculptures were discovered. Most people thought that they had been destroyed in the casting, but in fact they were uh, found in the aftermath of World War II in Paris. So uh, I have to say that I tribute again to Paul Mellon who bought all 70 sculptures when they came on the market. He gave 52 of them. We count the jockeys as two sculptures as well because they are they have separate numbers. So originally we thought we had 50, but in fact we have 52. 52 of them were given to the National Gallery. And uh, as Patricia said, we do have the largest holding in the world of the original sculptures. And Daphne and I have had the great honor for the last 30 years to study the waxes and the bronzes. So what exactly do we mean by taking an inside look at a sculpture? How did Degas make his figures? We've heard about his prints and his pastels and his paintings. What materials did he use? We can't tell just by looking how he made them or what's inside. So we used microscopes, ultraviolet light, we took x-rays to learn about his techniques. And this is that beautiful intersection of science and art history where we come together, call it technical art history, and learn as much as we can about uh, an artist or the artworks that they left behind. One of the first things we learned is that although these sculptures are called waxes, we, we commonly refer to them as waxes, um, that term is not actually accurate. Our gallery scientists, in particular Barbara Berry, Suzanne Lomax, and Michael Palmer, analyzed the material compositions. And I do refer you to their uh, article in Facture as well that describes these materials. The sculptures were found to be mixtures of beeswax and a non-drying clay, which is called plastiline, plus various pigments, fillers, potato starch. They even discovered some suet and lard in some of the pieces. 
Now this is a page from a 1904 Sennelier artist catalog showing you an advertisement for plastiline. They called it plastine. Sennelier shop actually still exists today. It's near the Musée d'Orsay. Degas was known to have frequent that shop. Plastiline is similar to a child's modeling clay. It's a clay that contains non-drying oils and fats, so you can continue to model it, squash it down, and use it again. And I also say, just look at the prices here. The um, modeling clay was a whole lot cheaper than the expensive beeswax. And it was, it was really the malleability of the plastiline as well as of the wax that excited Degas because we know that he loved to experiment, he could change a pose of a figure, and we've heard that over and over again today, uh, kind of a telling characteristic of our artist. Now in these details of another horse and jockey, I hope you can see the difference between the, oops, I gave myself away. Um, the, there's the green modeling clay, and then this outer layer is the uh, red, reddish beeswax. So a few weeks ago, we were very surprised to discover that there is still quite an active market for modeling clay. For real, modern automotive makers, all their high-tech equipment, they still continue to model in clay. When asked why clay, I quote, it's like using an erasable pencil versus permanent ink. Clay lets you go back and make changes. Clay has two characteristics that make it good for use. It's easy to change. You just add to it or take it away. It allows you to be creative and come up with something quickly. Is that Degas? All right. So who knew we would be linking Degas with Fiat and Ford? Always something. And as you saw in the Sennelier catalog, the plastiline was much cheaper, and so that was uh, something that today's modelers know too, that the medium is perfect for making changes, it's not as expensive as certain other materials, and it's uh, something that we all might want to think about if, if we have that urge to, to make sculpture ourselves. Uh, Richard pointed out that uh, Degas measured his progress in terms of technical innovation and experimentation. So we're, we're glad that we're able to discover what some of these materials were. You've seen some of these before, so I'll try and go quickly. Radiography was one of the keys that we used. You look at the radiograph the same way you would at one of your own, except in this case, the, the white dense parts aren't bone, they're the metal armatures that were inside of the um, sculptures. And you can see that it was a very labor-intensive, very full armature there on the inside. But I also want you to notice that he, Degas worked equally uh, carefully on the outside. You can see the hairs of the mane, the eyes, the mouth, the nostrils were all carefully inscribed in the surface of the wax. And now this x-ray and figure differ from that previous one where Degas had worked very carefully on making um, an armature by hand. This one shows a store-bought armature. And uh, it's inside of this sculpture, uh, Dancer at Rest, and we actually found one very similar to that for sale in a, um, an 1887 catalog from Boston. Sennelier also carried similar kinds of armatures. And just quickly, here's a drawing that 
Degas made in the 1850s. So even that early on, he was already thinking about armatures and sculpture. And you, you see how closely his armature resembles that uh, store-bought armature. Now, you stole my punchline, Patricia. We, we like to think that this uh, poster of um, radiographs, this image of uh, radiographs might be a poster. We can think a lot of doctor's offices might want to hang it inside their, their offices. Um, and I just show it to point out the many different kinds of armatures. There's store-bought ones, the uh, very labor-intensive ones, more loose, loose ones, ones that look just like drawings. And you saw this, this one already where um, Degas has a, a drafting tool inside the sculpture. So I will um, take a, just quickly go through these. You saw that, that uh, Degas put a, a tool that he could raise and lower the barrel of the horse, the barrel of the horse's chest. And why did he do that? Because we know he was aware of the Mybridge photographs, and I will push that date back further because in his notebook, one of his notebooks, Degas actually made a annotation about the time when Mybridge was visiting Paris, and that was when the first photographs were published, and that was 1878 in Paris. So he, he was um, very aware of what was going on. Mybridge made a lot of, um, impression on, on many, many artists. And the point of Mybridge placing his um, subjects on a gridded background was that artists could then count the little squares in the grid and know exactly where their subject should be at any certain time. So that's why we think he used this sliding uh, drafting tool, I think is what it is, so that he could get those legs at exactly the right spot that Mybridge had captured in his stopgap photographs. Another sculpture you've already seen, but she's so beautiful. Take a look at her again. Uh, we date the tub around 1889. She's one of a handful of mixed media sculpture in Degas' repertoire. And it's thought of as one of his more inventive and, and daring pieces. He had plaster-soaked rags, uh, cork, wood, wire. There's a strip of metal there to make the tub itself. And he painted, there's a thin layer of plaster painted on the inside to look like the water, and the bather is modeled in beeswax. Sometimes Degas bought pigmented wax. Other times he added colorants himself. You can just, just start to see a tint of the, of the red bees, beeswax there. But as we were looking at this sculpture, we noticed that it wasn't attached to a wood background. We very carefully slid it onto a piece of plexiglass, crawled underneath so we could see the bottom, and we were just thrilled to discover the beautiful red of the beeswax that wasn't darkened by time, and we also saw these giant pieces of cork that Degas used to uh, save money on the beeswax. So we, we call that a, a bulking agent, and they probably were from either mustard jars or fisherman's corks like these right here. Degas found a nice cheap bulking agent to save on his beeswax. In this, another mixed media 
sculpture that you've, you've seen, uh, we see how Degas was able to convey the um, relationship between the jockey and the horse. You can see how the jockey is in sync with the horse, the horse gallops. You feel the gallop because of the undulating bass that Degas incorporated. But also, I hope you can see in the detail that the jockey is wearing a real cloth jacket. The scientist analyzed it. The fabric is a weighted silk. That's the real fabric that jockeys used. He has um, uh, little boots. There's a placket, collar cuffs on the uh, jacket. And his hat is a black painted piece of fabric that's stiffened with paper. And the saddle is even pink wool. So all kinds of materials in this. And I can't talk about the sculpture without our favorite little dancer. She's certainly the most famous mixed media. And although she's beloved today, Little Dancer was not so warmly received when she originally appeared. Contemporary Paris reacted very strongly. And why was there such a controversy? Well, people weren't used to seeing a wax statuette of a working class subject, dressed in real clothes, placed inside a vitrine. And it, it truly challenged the conventions that sculpture should be made of white marble or of bronze, should depict heroines or goddesses, none of these street rats. Uh, Little Dancer also reminded people of an anthropological specimen because she was in a glass case. Her fabrication is really the most complex of all of Degas' sculpture. And as we heard already today, Degas was a brilliant draftsman. He drew the same subject over and over again. He made subtle changes until he got it right. He wanted to be able to envision a subject from all angles, from all sides. This drawing is from a private collection, and it really deserves a closer look as we're looking into talking about the little dancer. Now, she is shown nude here, but it's clear that Degas was thinking of how to make his dress dancer. And you might ask, why do I know that it's clear? And that's because we noticed a little doodle up in the right corner. And I'll make it a little bigger. It looks a little bit like an inverted tuning fork. But then when we x-rayed the little dancer, we found a metal armature inside with the identical shape of the doodle. You see that right there. And we were pretty excited about that. So it was obvious that Degas was working out the pose of the dancer as he was drawing her. He even was um, thinking about a base. You see that line behind the middle figure, and then he delineates the shape of the base, which we know the dancer is put on um, a thick wood board, might even be a floorboard from a ballet studio. And though Degas created a, a very innovative work of art with Little Dancer, as we know, he actually was following some basic uh, contemporary sculptural practices. He, the, we were able to identify the metal on the interior. It's lead. Why lead? Well, actually, um, in the 1900s, a sculpture manual came out by Malvina Hoffman. She was an American studying with Rodin, and um, they were advised, uh, sculptors were advised to have lead in their studios so they could make armature. That's what Degas used. But what else is interesting is because of that lead armature right here and the metal plate that screwed into the base, as well as the uh, clay here surrounding it, her position was locked into place. And Little Dancer wasn't 
This clay was actual air-dried clay. It wasn't um, modeling clay, so that would have cracked if, if the piece was moved. And here is a page from uh, an 1899 primer on sculpture and with a kind of similar uh, internal structure. So you see that Degas followed some traditional practices, but of course he wasn't going to follow everything, and he introduced his own techniques as well, such as, you see those paint brushes? Right there in the, there's the ferrule of the metal paintbrush, and there he used paint brushes for the armatures in his arms. And I have to thank Ampangeau for sharing with us these uh, images of paint brushes from Degas' studio that are now in the uh, Musée d'Orsay. Here there are three versions of the little dancer. On your right is the original wax here at the National Gallery. In the middle is uh, one of two plaster casts that were made around 1920, probably to aid in the casting uh, into bronze since she is the largest figure. And get back to that in a little bit. And on the right is one of the addition bronzes. Now I've said the word bronze, so that's my segue to part two. Uh, and I'll talk about the bronzes. After examining over 200 of the serial bronzes, uh, Daphne and I want to share some of our um, uh, insights on the casting of the bronzes that uh, we published in our Facture essay. And without getting into the moral issues, I want to emphasize that it, it really was the bronzes that brought public attention to Degas as a sculptor. Bronze is considered a more noble metal, and it certainly appealed to the 20th century collectors. But how did these bronzes come into being? I think Patricia gave you um, a quick overview. I'll give you a little bit more about how that casting happened. Degas never authorized his sculptures to be re reproduced into bronze. I'll quote from 1897, comment by Degas, my sculptures will never give the impression of being finished which is the termination of a sculptor's workmanship. It is too much responsibility to leave anything behind in bronze. So it was left to his heirs to balance Degas' wishes against their desire to preserve his work. And the heirs set up a contract with the A.A. Ebrard foundry in Paris. They realized the importance of using the lost wax casting technique because you could reproduce a sculpture in that often in just a single piece and it was very useful for uh, casting complex pieces, ones that had uh, a lot of undercuts like Degas' uh, sculpture certainly did with their projecting armatures. So if the original sculptures were made of wax, and the Ebrar foundry specialized in lost wax casting. How do we have waxes left if we also have bronzes? Now, Patricia gave it away. She said that there were sacrificial waxes made after, um, uh, from the originals. And it was also th uh, really thanks to the work of the master founder at Ebrar, this gentleman standing here, Albino Palazzolo, he's seated there, he even takes his dog into the foundry. I think OSHA would not let that stand today. There's someone smoking, and, but at any rate, that's a, a little peek inside of the uh, foundry back in the uh, early 20th century. But Palazzolo was entrusted with 
making gelatin molds of the waxes so that they could be preserved. Palazzolo actually uh, was awarded the Legion of Honor for his work in the casting of the bronzes. All right, I didn't hear any groans, terrific. This is um, just a, a quick uh, survey of uh, what the lost wax casting process looks like in the many multiple steps that it requires. I'll go through it really quickly. Basically, you have to start with an original. In this case, it would be Degas sculpture. A flexible mold of cool setting gelatin is poured into a mother mold made of plaster. Here's a period picture showing you that. That gelatin mold is then cut off of the wax, and we do find cut marks on the waxes where those gelatin molds were cut off. That gelatin mold was then used to make a duplicate wax. We can call it a sacrificial wax, an inner model wax, but that's the one that will get melted out. The, Wax is poured into the mold, slushed around, and poured out. And you see also um, a modern, a contemporary example of wax being slushed and poured out. This duplicate wax, this sacrificial wax, was melted out. That's what you see here in orange. You see the wax being poured out. And a second step in this slide is the bronze that we've colored it blue being poured into the mold, and there you see a, a modern bronze pour taking place. And the final bronze here in blue or would become the master bronze, the model bronze, and this is one of the uh, model bronzes. And it was these very first casts, the master bronzes, I'm hammering it away at what Patricia already described, that are now in the Norton Simon Museum in Pasadena, they were the ones, in turn, that were used to make all of the serial bronzes. So that entire process would be repeated over and over again because the gelatin wouldn't last for longer than about a week, and new, new gelatin molds would be made, then new sacrificial waxes would be made. In this picture, we actually see um, a comparison between the original wax, uh, model bronze, and then one of the serial bronzes. You can see that the surfaces of the bronzes were patinated, they were colored with various chemical formulations, but you also possibly can see that there's a slight difference in their scale and their size. The original is the largest, then the model bronze is the next largest, and the serial bronze is a little smaller. That's because when molten metal cools, it shrinks slightly. So there will be some uh, small measurable difference in scale. I have to say the casting was not without its casualties because four of the sculptures, four of the original waxes, uh, did not survive the casting process. So while there are 74 known bronzes, there are only 70 original wax and clay sculptures extant today. Now, Ebrar organized exhibitions in his gallery. He limited the number of casts, which made the bronzes more exclusive. This is the first exhibition catalog of the bronzes from 1921. Uh, the foundry titled all of the bronzes, and you'll see how um, ingenious they were in the titles. Grand Arabesque, Grand Arabesque, Woman, Woman, so on. And uh, you might also notice that uh, down here, 
little dancer is not included, and she had to be handwritten in, and because she wasn't cast yet in 1921. And in the lower left, there's some, oh, now you can see where, that's where Little Dancer was handwritten in. And I just enlarged here the special note in the lower right of the um, catalog page because that explains the uh, conditions for the casting. You can follow along with the French and I'll just zip through a, a little English translation. Basically, the edition was limited to 22 sets, 20 of which were for sale, one reserved for Degas' heirs, one, um, the other one for the founder. They would have a Degas signature, a cachet of the founder, the sculpture number, and the letter A through T. That's a lot. Looks like this. So you see the Degas signature, the cachet of the founder, the number, and the letter. It's a little complicated, so I'll go through it again. One set consisted of 74 separate sculptures, and each set received a letter. This is, uh, all of these are marked A, they're the A set of sculptures, they're in the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So you've got an A set, but then every sculpture received a different number. So for example, this one of um, Rearing Horse is number four. Every set, Rearing Horse is number four, but you've got the G, the model, the H-E-R-D, the R. So there, that's the way the sculptures were marked to differentiate them and to be able to keep track of them. And sometimes the bronze sculpture is different from its inventory photo. We've heard that already. In this Gautier photograph, you see on the right, seated woman lacks a head. But in the wax today and in the bronze, she clearly has a head. So from our analysis of the materials, we know that the head is the original head. And from the x-ray, we could see that this figure must have presented problems to Degas as well. I hope you'll agree with me that this very interesting uh, pin attack, attaching the head to the body is a hinge pin, a door hinge pin. So we're sure that is Degas' own repair. And then later, that head must have fallen off again. It was probably one of the pieces that were counted in that inventory. When she was photographed, she didn't have the head. And then the foundry put in these long nails, which you can still just see on the top of the head there. So I'm running out of time. I just want to quickly run through the rest of this and say that uh, we also had a terrific opportunity of performing laser scanning on a number of the sculptures, including the Little Dancer. We, we actually did groups of sculptures, and uh, we wanted to be able to measure the differences and uh, see how, how they all compare to each other. I promise you the head of the laser is not touching the sculpture. Uh, 3D models were made from the scans on the computer. They could be superimposed, they could be um, aligned, cut into cross-section to compare the versions. And the cross-sections, if you look down here, I hope you can see, it might be a little hard, that the blue, the plaster, is the largest. And that is to be expected because plaster does expand somewhat when it sets. And the smallest one is in yellow here is the one that's marked model. So uh, what does that mean? Uh, that, that 
particular sculpture could not have been the master for the other uh, little dancers. And I have to say that Norton Simon had already um, come to the conclusion that the, their sculpture could not have uh, served as the master bronze in little dancer situation only. But what was really interesting is that the difference in scale between the wax little dancer and the addition bronze with the little dancer grouping was um, uh, not, not the same as um, the difference between the waxes and the other um, groups that we, we um, looked at. Well, actually, it, it was the same as the others that we looked at. But the others all have a master bronze, a model. So that led us to question, maybe there is a missing model. And that we then looked at the uh, ledger books that were um, uh, preserved at one point from Ebrar. And on the Little Dancer page, they do list a model. So it's a working hypothesis, but it got us very excited because um, we then went and raced out to St. Louis to look at their little dancer. And she's published as 73M. Remember, A through T were all of the letters. But the letters on her plaque, where all of the A through Ts were listed, are MLE. That is the abbreviation for model, which appears on some of the smaller bronze models where they couldn't write out the whole word model. So little dancer sculptures are the only ones that are marked twice. The second mark is um, involved a little delicate tutu lifting because it's on her upper left thigh. And uh, we, I'll show you here, this is um, from the D little dancer, that's like right up in there. And you see we had to lift her tutu. And that's what all of the uh, other marked little dancers look like, but this is what we discovered on the upper thigh of the St. Louis little dancer. You see there's a whole big word, certainly more than one letter's worth, and we think that might be an M and O, and possibly an E there at the end, not sure, but it's been completely rubbed out, not rubbed, abraded, scratched out, and um, then this X inside parentheses inscribed, engraved into the wax after casting. We haven't performed um, laser scanning on this little dancer, so we're, but from what we were able to measure by hand, it seems that she's the same size as an addition bronze. So probably not the model, but we, we had high hopes. And I will just sum up to say it's uh, really challenging to try and sum up the work of such a great artist and his, uh, in only 20 minutes, and combining both the waxes and the bronzes. But uh, the art critic J.K. Huisman managed to make a, a perfect summary of uh, Degas' sculpture by discussing only one piece, and that was in 1881 after he saw Little Dancer. Monsieur Degas, has overthrown the, tradi the traditions of sculpture just as he long shook the conventions of paintings. So that's it for today's Inside Peak. This has been a National Gallery of Art podcast.